Hello and welcome to the EdTech Podcast. My name is Rose Ruckin and I'm your host. I'm a professor of learner-centered design at UCL's Institute of Education, Knowledge Lab and founder of Educate Ventures Research. Today, I'm lucky to have in our online pod studio a very special guest, Daisy Christodoulou, Director of Education at No More Marking, a provider of comparative judgment essay assessment software. Now, Daisy and I had great fun uh, giving evidence to the UK government's House of Commons Science and Technology Select Committee back in March when they were doing an inquiry on governance of artificial intelligence. And I think prompted by the introduction of ChatGPT, they realised that education was an area that they needed to discuss. So Daisy and I were very pleased to be invited along and we were giving evidence at the same time, which was great. And you can actually watch the proceedings from that committee, if you'd like to, by looking at the House of Commons Select Committee schedule and Parliamentary TV has all these things recorded for posterity. So you can have a look at that discussion if you'd like to, because it was certainly really interesting. And after the discussion, Daisy and I decided that actually it would be really great to do a podcast because whilst we agree about a lot of things, we don't agree about everything, but we disagree amicably. (laughs) And I think it's really important that there are discussions amongst people who do come at the same topic from different perspectives. And we try and air those different perspectives so that we can lay out the different kinds of territory that we're both thinking about when we're dealing with some of the key questions that are facing us as educators at the moment. So that's why we thought it would be great to do a podcast. And it's why I'm particularly delighted that Daisy was happy to come on and we can have this conversation, which will be very much about AI and education and the various different things that were raised during that session, which ran from AI governance and the fact that at that time, the government had just released a white paper setting out their proposed approach to governance of AI. We've seen a lot of activity in the EU over the EU AI Act, and it'll be interesting to see how both of these things progress over the coming months. We also talk about the kinds of ways in which AI is being used in teaching, the fact that there's actually quite a lot of misunderstanding or lack of understanding about AI amongst the general public and amongst many key decision makers all over the world, and that's quite a a big problem. And then we talked, obviously, a bit about the impact that ChatGPT and other large language models and other forms of generative AI are having on the world and are having on education. So we covered a lot of ground and we certainly had a very interesting discussion. And that's what we want to pick up on today. So I'm going to start by talking to Daisy a bit about her thoughts with respect to the evidence that exists about whether the kinds of AI tools that are being and can be used in education are having a positive impact on learners and teachers. And I'm also going to ask Daisy to say a little bit about herself as she answers that question. And I'm also going to ask Daisy to say a little bit about herself and a bit about No More Marking too. Great. Thanks, Rose. Yeah, so I'll say a bit about normal marking and what I do there and what we do. So as you said at the start, we provide online comparative judgment software to schools. And comparative judgment is an assessment technique that can be used to reliably assess open responses. The bulk of what we use it with uh, at the moment is to assess writing. 
So it's a very reliable, efficient, valid way of assessing writing. Uh, And it works on the principle that humans are much better at making comparative judgments. So when you look at two things and say, you know, which one is taller or better or, you know, whatever the particular uh, judgment you're making is, uh, we're much better at making a judgment like that than we are of just making an absolute judgment, which is when you look at one thing and place it on an absolute scale. So the, the analogy I always like to use is if two people walk into the room you're in and I say, who's taller, person on the left, person on the right, most people get that right. That's quite an easy task. Um, if one person walks into the room you're in and I say, how tall is that person? That's a much harder task. And the problem we have with assessing writing, not just in the UK, but globally, is that most of it relies on that absolute judgment model of looking at one piece of writing and trying to place it on an absolute scale. And that's very hard to do. It's very unreliable. So comparative judgment is a more reliable way of assessing writing. And we work with about 2000 schools in the UK, in the US and in Australia, and they use our software to uh, assess assess their students. And we've we've assessed about, I think, nearly a couple of million pieces of writing uh, over the last five or six years. So, yeah, that's who we are, what we do. So you'll see from all of that that we're obviously very, very interested in technology. Um, So the way comparative judgment can only really work really with, with, with cloud computing with very fast computing um, because it depends on teachers from across the country, sometimes across the world, making hundreds of thousands of decisions. And then the comparative judgment algorithm combines them all together to come up with a measurement scale. So this is absolutely an ed tech platform. It can't work without technology. So we're very, very interested in technology, but what about AI? So obviously what we do, what we do isn't what this has, the broad outline of what I've said there is not AI. It's not artificial intelligence. We rely on human intelligence to make the decisions. And then we have an algorithm which crunches all of those humans' decisions together. So I'm always really keen to emphasize this about comparative judgment, that it does depend at its base on human judgment, uh, that you know there isn't a machine in the loop <laughs> uh, making those judgments. The technology is being used to aggregate the human judgment. So what about artificial intelligence then, you know, how is that useful and how is it having an impact uh, both on what we do at Normal Marking, but more broadly with technology? So I definitely think there are ways it can and is being used at the moment for, for, for good, definitely. I also tend to think that a lot of the ways it's being used for good are maybe not as glamorous as people might think. So I think the slightly guilty secret of, uh, of AI is that some of its most effective uses are basically doing boring things like speeding up the processing of data. And I've heard a lot of people say that if if AI was actually called computational statistics, maybe it wouldn't have as much buzz around it. (laughs) Um, Let me give you one example of how we use AI in our software and how we use it. We think it's brilliant and very effective, but it's not particularly glamorous (laughs) and it isn't really related to Um, pedagogy, it's more related to saving time. So one thing that we do is I've talked to you about how teachers use our website to judge students' writing. And in order to get the writing into our system, they have to upload it. So they will upload a PDF of the students' handwritten tasks into our system. And every now and again, by accident, they will upload a blank sheet of paper. And as I've said to you, we're dealing with big numbers. So if we're if we've got an assessment of 100,000 responses and every student's written two sides, that's 200,000 pieces of paper. If only one percent of those are blank, that's a problem. 
Okay, because it means that when people are judging, they're going to have these random blank scripts pop up and then what, what should they do? So we need a way of filtering out those blank sheets. Now, what could we do? Well, we could ask our teachers to do it and that would be pretty time consuming for them. And it's one of those niggly, annoying little jobs that would add a burden onto them and they probably wouldn't spot them all. We can do it ourselves and that's what we used to do. We used to check them all. But again, that becomes a bigger and bigger burden. And it's one that humans actually, when they're doing it at scale, they miss pieces. So what we did um, uh, a few years ago is we built an AI model using Google's TensorFlow software. We built an AI model that we trained on some blank sheets of paper and some some non-blank sheets of paper. We trained it on those. And then we could let it loose on recognizing blank and filled in sheets of paper. And it's incredibly good. (laughs) So this 1% or so of blank sheets that accidentally get uh, get, get, get loaded into our system uh, this tool now recognizes them and get rid of them. And that's brilliant, right? That saves us time. It saves our schools time. And it's a very reliable kind of way of, of doing this. And I would say someone who's been a teacher, it is those niggly administrative jobs often to do with going through spreadsheets, matching things in spreadsheets, uh, you know, yeah, filtering out blank sheets of paper. Those are really annoying jobs that do take up time and are not what teachers should be doing. So if AI can be used to get rid of those, Fantastic. And I think a lot of the software that schools will automatically be using in schools will have that kind of AI in it without them even knowing. And in fact, in all our daily lives, there's AI like that going on all the time in the background, making things happen, making things work. So that kind of AI I don't have a problem with. And I think it's brilliant and it's there and it's here to stay. And I don't think it's necessarily really got dangerous implications either. Such a brilliant example. That blank page is such a brilliant example of AI being used to do those boring things, as you put it, but things that make a real difference in terms of making things run more smoothly. So I just wanted to pick up on what an important point I think you're making there, that there's a lot of AI being used in the background that we're not seeing. And I think that will absolutely continue. And maybe they will be some of the most useful and effective uses of AI that we see as we progress forward. But I also wanted to make a comment about the comparative judgment, because I think it is such a good way of innovating in assessment without stirring up too much angst, because you're not changing what's being assessed. You are, if I understand correctly, and I've used some of the comparative judgment software myself in research and found it tremendously useful just changing the way people make judgments about quality and making it easier for them. So I'd really like to know, before we move on, just if you've got any other thoughts about ways in which AI might, or maybe you're looking at other ways that AI might help. The blank page page is a brilliant example. Absolutely, yeah. So we have um, that, that blank page example. We have a few other examples like that of it doing back office tasks quite reliably. I think, you know, the, the the question that people almost always have, though, is what about perhaps a slightly more classroom focused, pedagogically focused um, uh, app- applications of AI? Now, I would say there certainly are some useful ones out there, not ones that we ourselves ha- have been using. But one particular aspect that I think is really interesting is the potential to use AI with large item banks either to um, develop formative assessments or adaptive summative assessments. 
So they just unpack that a bit more. And there's, there's a few organisations who are working in the, the margins and the areas of these fields. And it's I wouldn't say it's completely kind of fully developed yet, but I think the biggest sort of pedagogical application I can see is in this area. So I'll just unpack a bit what I mean. A large item bank is essentially a database of questions that you might want to ask students. There's lots of organisations that have those. And those questions could be maths questions, reading questions, science questions, whatever subject there is. And then... You can use you can use AI essentially to help a student navigate a path through those questions that is best suited to where they are. And you could do that using rules based AI, by which I mean, essentially, a teacher or an educator would in advance map out the right pathway through that bank of questions. So a teacher would say, well, if this student gets this question on multiplying like fractions correct, they can move on to this question. But if they get it wrong, they need to drop back to this question. So that's one way of a, 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 you could have teachers and educators programming the best way through uh, a, a bank of questions. And then when a student comes to sit those questions, they will essentially automatically be dished up the right question based on what they've done before. You can then have a model of that that's the same, but where the judgments are not being made by teachers, where the judgments are being made by the AI itself. So the AI would essentially be given a bunch of training data on previous students who have done all of these questions, and they would work out using that data what is the optimal path for a student who gets the question on multiplying like fractions, right or wrong. And I think, you know, as I say, those are essentially essentially two ways of deciding your path through the questions, a rules-based way and a kind of deep learning, machine learning way, but the same principle that almost instead of having a real live teacher in real time, picking what you do next, the computer is dishing up what you should do next. Obviously the benefits of that, which people talk about is the personalization. The, the, the one of the, the longstanding issues of education has always been the, the, the one to many problem that you've got one teacher and 30 students and anyone who's taught, will know that with the best will in the world, with the be- even with the best teaching in the world, even with students starting at the same standard and moving in lockstep, differences in their understanding of the material will crop up. And that's hard to do something about. So the great promise, I guess, of some of these AI models is that they will allow students to you know, have a personalised pathway through content and get more practice on the things that they're weaker on and not spend as much time on the things that they know already. So that's the promise of it. And as I say, I think there are plenty of organizations, probably more at the rules-based end of things, who are experiment with things like that. And there's a lot of organizations where there's elements of it, again, where you wouldn't know that there's an element of AI helping you, you through it. So most, I would say most of the, the sort of educational software where you're taking a question and it then tells you what to do next, there's an element of AI probably being involved. And probably not machine learning. I would say that seems to me to be rarer. Um, so I think that is very promising. But I still think it will be challenging. It's it's still not straightforward because when I talk to teachers about this and when you look at the systems that are out there at the minute, the great challenge is, well, how do you integrate a personalised system like that into the model of education, the classroom education that we have at the minute? And that's not easy because the point is nobody wants children to be sitting at a computer the whole time, uh, you, you know, doing questions on a screen. But they think, well, it might be nice for homework. But then how do you make that work when they're then going back into school and they've all done something slightly different? 
so you know integrating these things with a traditional model is not not straightforward but definitely huge promise there and that's where i'd say the biggest promise of ai educational tools is that makes so much sense to me daisy and i love the fact that you've brought in rules-based and machine learning AI, because I too believe AI covers both of those categories. I know some people think it's just machine learning, but I agree with you. And I think there's much of value in good old-fashioned AI using rules, particularly if you combine it with machine learning to help increase the transparency of the explanations that you can get from the system that are really hard when you're just using machine learning so I think that was a really and it was you gave a really great description of the way those things work and I also wonder like you about the extent to which I guess we know more about the more old-fashioned systems because they've been around for longer I mean I remember you know, for many years, I've looked at intelligent tutoring systems or adaptive learning environments. They've had different names over the years, but most of them are good old fashioned AI rule based systems, sometimes with a bit of machine learning as well, that actually do what you're describing, you know, guide students through different problems to suit their needs, different amounts of support. And, you know, the 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 meta reviews of these systems, and we can put some links in the show notes so that, that people can follow the links, you know, pretty much say it depends. They can be, you know, very effective, but often it depends on the quality, obviously, of the way the instruction's been designed, the quality of the way that the subject matter has been broken down into different problem areas or the different question types. But a big factor is the one that you've just identified is the way that the technology is integrated into the context or not. And so it's never simple to say AI will definitely (laughs) improve learning outcomes. It's it's more likely that good, well-designed AI can improve learning outcomes when appropriately integrated into the context. But we have more evidence of the older systems because they've been around for longer. But I agree. I think the great promise is when it comes to the teaching and learning, the pedagogy front facing part of AI, it is around that personalized learning, isn't it? And I just wondered on your th- about your thoughts on students who don't have a human teacher. I mean, over the years, a lot of research has been done, as I say, on the older systems that exist and some of the more modern ones. And generally, for good systems, you get an outcome that means that an adaptive system is more or less as effective as a good teacher teaching a group. So never as effective as the human doing one-to-one, but can can be very useful. And so I always argue that we're never going to replace AI with human teachers because human teaching is is far more, much richer, more complex. And I imagine we'd agree about that. But what about students who don't have a human teacher? Do you see a real possibility, a prospect for these kind of systems to really act as, I don't want to say teacher, but in a sense, a tutor, at least, as a learning support for that student who doesn't have access to a human teacher. Yeah, I think that's a tremendously interesting point. Um, that I spoke about the challenges of integrating this with classroom instruction, but what about those students who don't get classroom instruction, who don't have a teacher? And there's a lot of those globally. 
and just because we think in, in Britain where most students do have access to a school that that's that issue but you know globally that's not the case so yes I think there is I think that having access to this would be it's definitely better than nothing and there are a lot of um, organizations internationally who have decided that themselves and I think the one I sort of know most about and have read about and write about a little bit in my, one of my books is MindSpark in India and they generally get kind of pretty good reviews for what they do I haven't sort of read the sort of latest updates on them, but there's a couple of good papers from a few years ago that what they do um, in teaching kind of basic skills, literacy, numeracy is is pretty good. And certainly if you're looking at a target audience of, of students who the alternative isn't a class teacher, the alternative is nothing, then it's much better for sure. So I, I think, yeah, in that sense, in the developing world, there could be huge potential. I think, yeah, but as you say, the, the challenge the challenging countries where students do have access to schools and, and and human instruction is how do you get the AI to work alongside that? And I think you're right. I mean, one of the things I really have been so fascinated by is what is it about human instruction that does work and is so powerful and is hard to replicate? And a lot of people, I think most people tend to think, you know, and I'd agree with them, well, I don't want a world where a student's sitting at a computer screen all day. And, and generally, when I sort of ask, say, people, why is that? You know, I agree with them, but let, let me push to the bottom of it. Why do you not want a student seeing a screen all day? And they'll tend to say, well, you know, it might be good for them learning stuff. But, you know, what about all the socialization, the social skills? And I would agree with that, too. But I almost think that actually concedes too much. In that people say, well, yeah, sure, you can learn everything you need to through a screen. But what about everything else? I'm not sure you can learn everything you need to through a screen. And one of the things I wrote about in my book, Teachers Versus Tech, is, you know, what is it about human presence, especially with young children, that may be necessary even for the, the just the learning of basic skills? Now, I don't want to over-egg it because obviously things like MindSpark are successful and do, do work. But there's lots and lots of evidence, too, that I think sometimes we can forget that physical presence matters. So, for example... I think 18 month, two year olds, if they are in a room and a human walks in and says something, they're kind of automatically going to turn around and look at the human. If that human is still saying saying the same thing on a screen, they don't automatically turn and look around. Now, I know there's lots of tablets that have games that children are very, you know, do get very absorbed in and and do get kind of uh, a bit obsessed with. But there is still something, I think, in all of us as humans where we are kind of hardwired to pay more attention to physical human beings. And I think that's probably an evolutionary kind of feature that is not going to fade away anytime soon. And so you can do an enormously clever things with gamification and motivation and what have you. But I tend to think there is this element of, as I say, motivation, attention, all of these things, which, which matter, they aren't just kind of nice to have add-ons that they matter for instruction as well. And I think a lot of those matter, particularly for young children. And as I say, I think we can forget sometimes, we think everything can be delivered for a wire, just how much physical place matters for young children. That would be my take on that. Notwithstanding the fact that I think things like MindSpark have a lot going for them and are doing a lot of good. That's fascinating. I I think I agree with you that you can't learn everything through a screen. Mm. I, I think that's that's absolutely true. 
I do wonder, and thinking about what you were saying about your book, and, and we'll put some links to your books in the pod notes, and also it would be great to put some links to those papers you referred to from MindSpark, because I think that would be great for listeners too. Thinking about what you were saying about what is it about teaching and the human act of teaching, if we were to take the instance of students who don't have a teacher, whatever their age, and think about how could we then make the AI more impactful for them? So in the way we think about it in the classroom, there are ways in which we know how to integrate it more or less effectively. We may not know everything, but there are various guidelines about the best chance you'll have. If you're using this product, here are some things you can do to give it the best chance of working in in your particular classroom. So we know a bit about that. And obviously, context is super important. But for students who don't have the classroom, and and this offers the potential for an education that they're not getting at the moment, I just wonder, I suppose I'm thinking a bit about the hole in the wall research done by Sugata Mitra, where those children were often playing in groups and learning in groups, weren't they? There was an element of collaboration. And I don't know what you're thinking is about this, but I'm just wondering if that that collaboration between students could be important in this kind of situation. Whereas what we tend to be hearing about is the personalised tutor for the individual student, because, of course, that helps them as an individual. I don't know what your thoughts are about that, Daisy. Yeah, so I think, as I say, I think there are some, What what is it that, that matters about, about the human, human content? I think there are some... As I say, I think there's probably some things to do with attention, but what do we pay attention to? You hear that phrase a lot, learning is social. That can mean a lot of different things. You know, what do we mean by that? I tend to think most things are social. (laughs) Morality is social. You know, um, like everything is social. And we realised that a lot in the pandemic, didn't we? That without other people around you, actually, what is life? (laughs) So I think a lot of things in life depend on the, the people around you. And the, the reasons, yeah, if you like, you know, why you're studying something and what other people are doing, you know, peer pressure. We always tend to think of peer pressure as being a bad thing. There are good examples of peer pressure where, you know, you want to do things because that's the thing that's that's good and pro-social and you want to help other people. And so I, I think there is an aspect of being around your peers and seeing how your peers are, are doing and wanting to kind of, you know, do things that they do. I think there's things about that that matter. I think, as I say, attention is huge. What do we pay attention to? I think there's an element of us paying attention to other human beings, uh, people paying attention to what other human beings think is important. And attention is the currency of learning. So what we pay attention to really matters. Um, So all those things, I think there is an element of learning being social. I also think, and again, I think we saw this in the pandemic, that schools, physical schools provide a structure and a routine that it can be easy to just dismiss and say, oh, you can recreate that. It's actually quite hard to recreate, you know, so that that physical structure and routine and motivation and just the organisation of the school day, I think, really matter. And that's where I'd say, actually, I probably depart from some of the Sugata Mitra stuff in the, I, you know, I'm slightly dubious about some of the outcomes from that. And I, I feel that um, actually that kind of very unstructured, unsupervised learning is not helpful. And so I would say, you know, what you want a physical school with human beings in to provide is definitely the social aspects 
and I mean social in its broadest sense, you know, what are other people doing? Um, you know, what are the things that adult humans think are valuable and important? <laughs> provides the structure, provides the routine, and provides the kind of the, the things you, you you know the 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 things you want to pay attention to. So I think all those things are important. And if you just have a child at home sitting in front of a screen, I think are very difficult to provide. I suppose you can then get into some hybrid models. And again, if you've, you know, again, you're looking at the developing world, you don't have the teacher ratio numbers. What about a world where there's a teacher at the front and there's a hundred kids sitting at a screen, but there's a teacher there and they're all in the same room. You know, I don't know enough about that. I mean, you go back to the sixties and there's Skinner's teaching machines um, at BF Skinner, you know, and that was before computers, a very basic kind of teaching machine. And you've got a setup like that of a hundred students in a room all in front of their teaching machine. You know, I, I, mean, I, I mean, teaching machines clearly didn't work. Otherwise we'd all be using them. But, you know, with a more interactive laptop, tablet, computer, could that work? I, I still feel just slightly sceptical. So I, I do think these systems have enormous potential and I don't think we've got close to maxing out the potential and I think actually on all kinds of things in terms of production values and user design, there's a lot more we could be doing. And I think it's worth putting that effort in. But I also think they have to somehow be integrated, as I say, with um, with with some kind of physical instruction. Yeah, I, I, I agree with your scepticism, I think. I, I guess I'm perhaps more optimistic about the possibilities of a more fluid, slightly less structured, peer-based environment. I'd love to see it experimented with. I understand some of the reservations about the Hole in the Wall project, but I think it was interesting. It was an interesting experiment um, that that helped some children engage with learning. And I would be interested to see what a comparator with a personalised, you know, bot, how, how could you create the kind of group dynamics that might help to support learners who don't have a structure. Mm-hmm. Um, but maybe we can revisit that at the end of the pod when we talk about the future, because it might be one of the future scenarios. But I wanted to pick up on something else you said, because uh, I thought it was really interesting. You said, I think, attention is the currency of learning. And and I think attention is something that's a brilliant link to the next question that I wanted to ask you, which is really about the fundamentals of learning. I personally think, like you, that attention is supremely important and even more so my awareness as a learner of my attention. You know, do I have the higher order thinking skills that enable me to know when my attention is being distracted, when I'm losing focus? Do I know how to get myself back on target? All of those kinds of things, which I think are, are supremely important. And I'd, I'd love to have a discussion about the fundamentals of learning, because we touched on this when we were giving evidence to the select committee. And I think we both agreed that we can't just do away with the things that AI is good at just because AI is good at it, but that we need to maybe have a bit of a rethink. But I think we're probably in slightly different places along the spectrum about what that rethink might be like. So can you say a bit more about how you see the fundamentals of learning and perhaps a bit about the what we need to learn 
and how it may or may not be different now that we have these AI systems that are good at very particular sorts of things. Absolutely. So I think the attention is a currency of learning, as you said. You know, I think that is a crucially important point. And I think the reason that's I think that's always been important, but it's even more important to recognize that now because attention nowadays is not just the currency of learning. It's also the currency of the entire Internet economy. Right. So what you have is some of the world's biggest companies with the most money and the smartest people working for them essentially make their money by stealing your attention. Right. And that is a challenge for anyone involved in ed tech. You cannot be blase about that. You cannot wish it away. The reality is that all of the free services you use on the Internet, if, the, if, if something is free, it's not free. You're the product. <laughs> right. So Facebook is obviously the biggest and clearest example of this. It is a free service. It makes its money for advertising. It makes its money through selling your attention to advertisers. Same is true of Twitter. Now, the ways they use to grab your attention and sell it onto advertisers, are we happy with those? You know, are they more or less ethical? And if we're happy with them for adults, are we happy with them for young children? And when we also consider that for young children, attention is the currency of learning, how do we feel about very big organizations trying to steal some of that attention? So these are all things you have to be honest about. And I get I do get frustrated when I hear people say we just need to teach students how to manage their attention, because I think that understates the, 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 the extent of the problem, which just to repeat again, is that some of the world's smartest people with the most money are trying to steal your six year old's attention. So don't set your six year old up to fail. And there's an element almost to me of cruelty in this. Are we honestly saying, to, you know, six year olds, 10 year olds, 15 year olds, Again, yeah, you know, we're putting you in front of this absolute beer moth and we're saying that if you can't resist, it's your fault and you're a bad person. Like, we have to be honest that perhaps in some circumstances, the best way to manage your attention is to put a device away, put a phone away. And I think there's more and more acceptance of that now because I think more and more adults are realising that they are very uh, bad at managing their attention in the face of this onslaught. And if they are not so good at managing it, what must it be like again for a 14 year old? And I think you're going to see more and more movements. I honestly think this is a bit similar to some of the debates about smoking, that you cannot pass a law overnight. You know, if in the 1950s, someone in, in Britain, a politician had decided to have a smoking ban in, in public places, well, you would have had mass civil disobedience. It's not possible. So social change doesn't work like that. What happens is civil society and the law kind of go in lockstep. And sometimes civil society is a bit further ahead and sometimes the law is further ahead. But, you know, they both have to be fairly close to each other. And I think in just in the last year or two, just anecdotally talking to not just teachers, but just people you know across the board, people have realised that there is something out there with phones, with social media, again, post-pandemic, when everything came through a screen. People are realising what this is doing to the quality of their attention. Um, and to um, their ability to direct their intention as attention as they would wish. And I think you're seeing more and more adults doing things like having a phone detox or maybe even just putting their phone in a box and locking it away. So I think there's just a wider acceptance in civil society. And as I say, I think that will go lockstep with rules and regulations. And I think one of the big things you're going to see across society, again, not just education over the next 10 years, is tech regulation more generally. 
So I've gone slightly off topic here, <laughs> uh, talking about where I see this going. So I, I think you're going to end up with some interesting places around devices, how they are used, how they aren't used. And let me tell you how long we're responding to this. So we have for five or six years now, all of our writing assessments we do on paper. And a lot of people think this is crazy. They say, well, why don't you get the students? Wouldn't it just save time if they just type their responses straight into the screen? Um, and then you wouldn't have this to faff around with this, you know, I'll tell you about the blank page problem. Well, if the students type their responses straight in, you just get rid of that problem. <laughs> and instead we do this process where the students will write their responses on coded sheets of paper. And when they're scanned in, our system will recognize then it can do all of the number crunching and it can provide teachers with really good analysis, even though the, the children have never seen a screen. And for us, actually, this is something we think really works and is really valuable, that we can say we're getting the best of both worlds, that the students get to, that you know, they don't see a screen. They're seeing, a, you know, pen and paper. And there's all sorts of benefits to that. So one of the things I didn't talk about before when we were talking about sort of physicality or whatever, but this whole area of research is embodied cognition and embodied cognition. It sounds a bit waffly and a bit, you know, is it a bit woohoo, but it's a really, you know, serious area of research. And a lot of the things that AI and computers can't do often comes down to embodied cognition. The fact that we don't just think with our minds, we think with our bodies. And again, all kinds of interesting research about when you learn, to, if you, you know, there are children who maybe learn to read mostly and they are on computer and they are typing out letters. They learn to read and write that way. And they don't form as rich associations and mental embodiments of the letters as students who learn to write by hand. So the students who learn to write by hand, they kind of fix the meaning of those letters into their brain more securely and more flexibly than students who just type. There's all kinds of research that when adults take notes by hand, they'll remember more. So there's all these interesting ways in which, you know, we could be thinking, should we just be chucking out all of the pens and papers and getting students onto devices and actually, I think we've got to be careful and be wary and look at this, particularly this area of embodied cognition about how it would be think. And as I said, no more marking. We are trying to live that because what we're trying to do is to say, well, look, we want the computers and the technology, the efficiency and the time saving aspect of them for teachers. But we want students also to be able to learn to read and write in the optimal way. So I've gone slightly off topic there, but I hope that's still still relevant, still interesting. It's fascinating. And I think. You're saying that we still need students to learn to read and write in the traditional way, to be numerate, and I, and I agree. I think this issue of attention as a commodity is important and certainly something we need to be wary of. From my perspective, I'm very concerned that we help students not just understand more about their own attention, but also understand more about how they can differentiate when they're being told something that isn't true, when they're being manipulated, how they can make better judgments about what good evidence is that should help them believe something to be true or not. But I take your point, which I think is really important, about to what extent we then run the risk that we're saying to the student, it's your fault. It's your fault that your attention has been manipulated. And I'm certainly not in favour of that. And I think it's really important, and it certainly came across in what you were saying, Daisy, to appreciate the complexity of managing one's own attention, of being able to make those judgments. This is not easy. 
But it is really important because it does differentiate us from AI. You know, these more meta level intellectual skills, these higher order thinking skills, whatever language you want to use to describe them, where we are more self-aware, where we can be better at self-regulating, do differentiate us from AI. And therefore, I do believe they're fundamentally important, but very difficult. They don't we're capable of them, but we don't just gain them without making the effort. But I think, as I've said, the point that you've made about the risk with that approach of then making the student feel that they're to blame is a really important risk. So I personally believe these higher order thinking skills are fundamental to the future. Yes, of course, we need numeracy and literacy, but we do need to help students develop these higher order thinking skills because they will help them to be better at learning, but also help them to differentiate themselves from their AI peers. I also think the point that you've made about devices versus software is also interesting. So you referred to the brightest minds creating these pieces of software, basically, that distract us. And you're absolutely right. These people are expert at grabbing our attention for sure. But that's the software that runs on the devices rather than the device itself, isn't it? And I think that's an interesting differentiation that we don't often make, um, that actually we can control the different pieces of software that we use on our phone to an extent if we actively make the effort. So we talk about not using our phone. And I know I I do exactly the same thing. No, I'm not going to look at my phone for two hours or whatever it is. But actually, it's the software. But some of it is very hard to turn off. You know, you turn off all the notifications, but you still get something coming through. And you look at your phone and then you get distracted and your back sucked back into that sort of vortex of having your attention commoditized. So it's hard to know how we do prepare young people for what is this very complex space without making them feel a failure because they're not doing well enough at at controlling their attention. And yet we have to do something. So I don't know, just as a final take on this point, what's your thinking around this? How do we tackle this with young people of all ages to try and help them be better prepared? But as you say, without making them feel bad if they find it really hard because it is really hard well I think honestly that what you said there that is the key issue of the next sort of 10-15 years I really do and I I think actually not just in schools but wider society it's going to be a key issue and I likened it to smoking because I think it is similar and I think some of the ways our attention is being manipulated now we will look back on and this is not me being a Luddite you know we'll still have technology we'll still be using it but we'll be looking back on some of the ways it was manipulated and thinking, you know, that was a, that was a low point. <laughs> that was not good. Um, and, you know, I, I think there's some ways we can see the landscape shifting at the minute. As I say, just the more and more the willingness, for example, you know, of, of people saying, well, actually, you know, do, do, do my students, perhaps, perhaps, you know, my children, do they need a phone? Perhaps they do, but it doesn't need to be a smartphone. Does it need, you know, does it have to be a smartphone? What you were just saying about some of the device, you know, some of the software, what is on a phone, actually, do we need all that every day? <laughs> the, the point about the phone is it does everything. <laughs> it does absolutely everything. But actually, when, a div- when it's like a lot of things in life, when something does everything, it doesn't do anything very well. And so maybe we need 
more specific devices and technology. You know, maybe we need dumb phones, right? Maybe we need dumb, uh, dumb devices that only do one thing. And as I say, I think you can see start starts of, of of a move towards this, not just in schools, as I say, but beyond that. And I I just honestly think in the next 10, 15 years, things will look very different. And you will have, as I say, the regulation, the government level regulation um, and civil society kind of moving in lockstep. At the minute, where I have a lot of sympathy for schools in a lot of areas is it's very hard for schools to unilaterally kind of um, come up with their own take and policy and enforcement on these issues. You know, so it's very hard for a school in a community where every student has a smartphone at aged aged eight to unilaterally say, okay, right, we're going to have smartphone-free classes, smartphone-free school. That is not easy. And, you know, you talk to parents. There are parents who say, well, I don't want my child to have a smartphone, but everyone else had one. So what did I do? What could I do? So it's very hard, as I say, for schools to act alone in this space. And I don't think they should be expected to. I think that's unrealistic. As I say, I think it has to be a, a wider thing where it's partly government, it's partly schools, and partly, as I say, I know civil society, it feels like a nebulous phrase, but it is that thing where, you know, people just wake up one day and go, you know what, this is just not right. <laughs> and I, I just sense, as I say, beyond education, there is a little bit of a tipping point on this. I think post-pandemic, you know, in the pandemic, everything you got came through a screen. Suddenly people are saying, is that what we want? Is there a way that I think there's a sense that maybe technology it's not we've not it's got this incredible power and we've what are we using it for? Are we using it for the things that maximize our human flourishing or, or not? And and I think if I'm being an optimist, what I would like to see again the next five, 10, 15 years in education, but more broadly, is the technology being used more for human flourishing and less about some of this kind of manipulation. It's really interesting. Once again, you led beautifully into the final question I wanted to ask, which was about the future. But I'm just going to pick up something you said there, because I think it's really interesting about dumb phones. Basically, what I do with mine, I turn it back into a dumb phone because, you know, that's sometimes what I want. Um, But that's fine for somebody like me who's quite knowledgeable about the software and can do it. It's not easy for everybody. And I think especially for, for, for younger people who have more time and get more easily distracted perhaps by some of the, the, the very attractive things that you can find on your phone. So I think you're right. It's, it's interesting to think in terms of actually if we want to remain smarter, is there something about the value in thinking about slightly dumber devices? Mm-hmm. I certainly sympathise with schools. I think they're in a very difficult position at the moment. I think it, it's very easy to, you know, for somebody who works, you know, in a, in the area of ed tech and can be quite evangelical about it, like myself, to say, oh, you know, smartphones are a godsend for learning. No, I, I don't think that. I think they can be incredibly problematic in the classroom. I get it. I understand. They can be very powerful learning devices, but they can also be huge distractions. And 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 it is difficult to manage that. It's not easy to square the circle. And so I think we do need structures and frameworks in place. I agree with you on that. I think we need to help people understand more about technology. But in particular, at the moment, I think understand more about AI. One of my fears is that people 
won't understand enough about AI in time not to be commoditized in yet another way by very clever people in the Silicon Valley. You know, you've drawn attention quite rightly to what's happened with social media, basically. And I worry that unless we really get ahead of the curve and really help people to understand enough about AI and to understand it in a non-technical sense, because I think if we try and help everybody understand the technicalities of AI, we're on to a lost cause because for so many people, that will switch them off and then they won't understand anything about AI. And there's a lot you can understand without knowing the details. I mean, you gave a great explanation right at the start of this podcast about what you do to differentiate blank pages or no more marking. That was understandable to anybody, I'm sure. And so there are many ways that we can explain AI, but I worry that if we don't get ahead and really make that a core part of what we're doing, then we really run a risk that people will be taken advantage of and will be commoditized even more than they are now. But just finally, Daisy, can you tell us a little bit more about what you would like to see in 10, 15 years' time? You can give, you can pick your own time frame, but what would you like to see with respect to AI? If we get it right, yeah. what will our learning look like? Well, look, I, I definitely agree with what you said there about the better understanding. Um, and we haven't talked today about large language models. <laughs> We've kind of talked about the sort of older versions of, of AI. Um, and I have been quite worried. I've been talking to groups of heads over the last um, couple of months, really, about these new large language models. And I've just been a bit surprised and a, a bit worried by just some of the misapprehensions that are out there. And a lot of heads will say to me afterwards, you, you know, I'll, I'll show them just some examples of what ChatGPT, what it cannot do and the errors it makes. And they're astonished. You know, they're really astonished. And one of them said to me, you know, she said, I'd heard in the news that it made errors. She said, but I, I kind of thought it just made like minor typos or, you know, it, it made errors about kind of very controversial topics. She said, I didn't realise it made basic maths errors. You know, I pulled up some examples of it making very basic maths errors. And she said, I just couldn't believe that. I thought that would be the thing it would get right. So, there are huge misapprehensions out there about what some of these systems can and can't do. There's also, I, I think, just a lot of um, a, a lot of, on the one hand, hype, and on, on the other hand, kind of, uh, you know, doom and narratives about how they're going to, you know, destroy the world. <laughs> so, in terms of, you know, where would you like to be in sort of 10, 15 years' time? I would like to see there being being more progress on what I see as those really effective AI models. Uh, probably, you know, the the pathways through the large banks of questions. Um, I think that's the most promising field. And I would like to see more of that in the context of, yeah, how do you integrate that within a classroom? And I will say I'd like to see more of that, of how do you integrate that in the classroom without exposing the students to devices that are going to sap their attention? So those for me are the, are, are the challenges. And I suppose, yeah, the optimist is if you get it right, you know, this is the big if, isn't it? But if we get it right, then potentially there is huge promise. And if you think of it, you know, imagine the ability to, you know, not just children, but adults as well, the ability to learn a foreign language uh, more effectively in, in half the time it normally takes. You know, that's a huge promise and it's one that a lot of people promise and it's hard to get to. But if there are ways that you could, uh, you know, develop these systems, you know, something like that, something quite concrete, 
that would be tremendous. It, you know, the ability, I don't know, for everyone to master kind of basic algebra in, in half the time it takes at, at the moment, that, that kind of thing. So that's the optimistic take that we put our effort and our energy into these really effective kind of um, big banks of questions, optimised ways through them, optimised ways they can be integrated with a physical classroom and get everybody learning, learning, you know, having more fun learning, learning quicker, learning better, that kind of thing. That's the that's the dream. Well, I like to end on an optimistic note, so I'm definitely going to do that. Fascinating discussion. Thank you so much, Daisy. I'm just not going to let you go, though, before I've asked you our new question, which will be in all of the chat podcasts, uh, roundup podcasts, and that is, I'd like you to tell me your favourite book, favourite movie, favourite music track or artist or both. Okay. Don't mind. You can pick and do it in any order. <laughs> right. Okay. Um, so um, in terms of favourite favourite book um, and maybe favourite favourite novelist, um, you, you know, like I was an English literature teacher, so there's a lot of yes. competition here. And um there's a lot, a lot of names and authors and books I could give. And probably every time I get asked it, I say something different. But um, I must say, it's not the most highbrow answer. I do really like Agatha Christie detective novels. Uh, Love so it. It's not, not the most highbrow answer, but, um, uh, you know, I, I can say other things too, but I do, I do, I do love them. Um, and I, I do, I do really like Death on the Nile. You know, I think it's uh, it's a lot of fun. <laughs> so as I say, it's not the most high brand, so I could have given a lot more, but um, I, I do really like an Agatha Christie. Excellent. And what about movie? What what kind of movies do you like? Oh gosh, that's a really good question. Um, so what kind of films do I like? Um, I, I do really like. I'm just looking at my my bookshelf. I've got a, a copy of his um, biography. I, I, I really like those old Alfred Hitchcock films. Um, I actually love these early black and white ones. Yeah. And I absolutely um really like The Lady Vanishes. Really lots and yes. lots of fun. So people trapped on a train going across Eastern Europe, um, kind of people disappearing. That's a lot of fun. I always enjoy kind of rewatching that one. So yeah, that's a good one. That's great. I love it. And how about music or band or artists yeah. you can pick? I am I'm quite a big Bob Dylan fan. So I always have been. I really, really like his music. Um, what would my album be? I'd probably go for Blood on the Tracks. Probably the 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 the, the first track on that album, Tangled Up in Blue. I really, really like that. So yeah, I've always been a big, big Dylan fan. Great choice. And and what are you reading at the moment? So at the moment I'm reading um I'm reading the new new book by Tom Holland, the historian, not the Spider-Man actor, Pax. So uh, it's a you know, another one in his sequence on the Roman Empire. And yeah, absolutely loving it. I think he's a tremendous historian. So, so really enjoying that. Excellent. Thank you, Daisy. It's so nice to get an insight into what you like and what you read. I just think it tells us so much and it's more personal. So thank you so much for indulging me with the, with answering those questions. And thank you very much for, for coming on the pod. I think listeners will really enjoy this episode. There's so much in it. I almost wish we'd done two episodes, done it yeah. in two parts, because well, there's so we, many things we, we didn't get to talk about. We barely mentioned LLMs, which is, you know, <laughs> all I seem to talk about at the moment. So it was actually quite nice to do something and not mention them. So, yeah. Yeah, indeed. But but maybe we'll do another episode later in the year and actually revisit LLMs. Maybe after the AI Act yeah. has become law. That might be interesting to see yeah. whether that's changed things or not. Let's revisit that. But thank you so much, Daisy. That was absolutely great. Um, 
I'm also excited that we will be launching a new mini series on AI in education in the coming okay. months. So keep right. listening more on that. Yeah. I hope wherever you're listening, you found our discussion informative and practical and that there's something that you've heard that you can use or share. We'll put some notes with the pod notes, some of the things that we've referred to, you'll be able to find there so that you can follow the links. If you want more information on the series or our lovely guests, please visit the EdTech Podcast website, which is www.theedtechpodcast.com and connect with us via social media. To see how educators keeping evidence at the heart of EdTech, go to www.educateventures.com or join the conversation in LinkedIn. You've been listening to the EdTech Podcast presented by myself, Professor Rose Luckin, with my guest, Daisy Christodoulou from No More Marking, which can be found at www.nomoremarking.com. Thank you so much for listening.